Well, today, this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that I'm pretty sure you're all familiar with. If I had to guess, you might have a, a copy of it uh, hanging up on one of your walls, maybe in the kitchen, uh, maybe in your bedroom. I would say it's probably not unusual for you to have been at a wedding ceremony, perhaps even your own ceremony, and to have heard these words read. As a matter of fact, I have even been to uh, wedding ceremonies with people who are rank uh, unbelievers, and they still took the time to read the scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. I uh, would invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, and this morning we're going to be looking at the idea of love, true biblical love. And the title of our sermon is, Love is Sacrifice. You know, the problem with the passage that is familiar is that it's just like anything else that we are accustomed to, used to seeing or hearing. It's something we can grow cold toward. It's something like familiarity breeds contempt. And what is so often the case in situations like that is that we will think we understand what it means, but the reality is we have no idea what it means. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul is in the midst of giving a very very long corrective letter to a church that was in absolute abysmal shape. And he gives them this wonderful instruction of what true love looks like, what biblical love looks like. Now, if I had to ask you what love is, I would be sad to say that probably most of you have a wrong understanding of it. We live in a world system, not just this culture, but a world system that is opposed to biblical love. And, you know, if I had to give you a one-word summation of what worldly love is, do you know what it is? Self. Self. See, the culture we live in is it's focused on the self. It's all about me. We have Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts, Instagram accounts, Twitter accounts that, that say, look at me. Look what I did today. Look at my manufactured perfect life. Take notice. We talk about self-esteem. We have an entire shelf dedicated to self-help. Some of the best-selling books are self-help books. We love the story of the self-made man, that guy that pulls himself up by his own bootstraps. We even like to go to the theme park and take selfies. In a culture absorbed with the self, the question we have to ask ourselves, is there room for anyone else? You know, I find it profound that when Jesus spoke these great words that we know as the golden rule, He had to talk about the self to help his hearers understand this problem that is not, normative, or not, not just specific to our culture, but is normative to man. He said, if you want to know how to love others, you need to love them like you would love yourself. It's a great point of reference. I never had to be taught how to love myself. I'm quite adept at it. It's kind of like sin. You never had to teach your kids how to sin, did you? They kind of learned it on their own. Well, when it comes to love, no one really had to teach you how to do it. You were very expert at it. Even self-hatred is a kind of love. Still drawing attention to the self. It's still self-focused. But you know, when it comes to loving others, that's really hard, isn't it? When it, when it comes to loving others the way that you'd want to be loved, no, that, that's a little too much. Sacrifice. Wayne Mack says this, The reason that most people think of themselves to be loving... Is either, is either that they don't actually know what love is, or really they've never defined it. 
And in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7 that we're going to look at this morning, uh, we're going to have just a short study. Uh, one, one morning. It's a, a study that I hope whets your appetite and causes you to go more deeply into it. Uh, trust me when I say that there are other expositors that have spent weeks, months, years preaching through this passage of Scripture. And there is no lack of depth for you to gain from going deeply into it. But for our purposes this morning, I just want to sort of get you started in a direction of looking at this passage of Scripture, considering it. So let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, you know this This subject of love is profoundly challenging for our hearts to dwell on and to truly wrestle with. And given the the depth of this study, uh, the, the, the need that we have to go so much further than we're able to this morning, Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to uh, multiply uh, what I've been able to get glean just this week and. Uh, give it to these folks, these dear folks, so that they would be able to begin to practice these things to some degree in their daily lives for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, and for their own good hearts. Amen. What's fascinating about Corinthians is if you ever read it, I've been reading it and rereading it this week, is it really does seem like a church that could not possibly be a real church. <laughs> You know, I, I think we forget about this because we have so many churches that we could go to that if any of you were going to Corinth, you would have many, many reasons to leave. Uh, you would have very few reasons to stay. Uh, the, the people at Corinth, they were so literally puffed up. They were so arrogant. They were so proud that in chapter 5, Paul says that they were allowing a type of immorality such as does not even exist among the Gentiles to go on. And they were proud about it. They were excited. They said, man, look at the freedom that we have. Look at the liberty that we have in Christ. Man, you could do anything as a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see that the the consuming love for self had made their church lunches into gluttonous affairs where those who were wealthy had plenty, were overfilled, gorging themselves, while those who were poor had nothing to eat. Nothing was left for them. And to make things even worse, they had made the Lord's table a place of drunken revelry rather than serious sobriety and taking account of one's soul. 
In fact, Paul says that things had gotten so bad that some were even starting to pass away because of the Lord's judgment and the way that they had taken the Lord's table in a drunken manner. This church was filled with factions, backbiting, hubris, and one-upmanship. And perhaps worst of all, God had granted this church many miraculous signs and sign gifts and also just natural gifts of communication and uh, sign gifts of supernatural wonders such as tongues and healings and workings of miracles. And those things which God had given to to authenticate the message of the gospel that they preached were being used to lavish love upon oneself, to draw attention to the self rather than to God. And so instead of conviction and hope, their Sunday gatherings were chaotic and unwelcoming. Is it any wonder why when Paul writes this letter, we find this familiar exclamation continually. What? You did what? It's like a parent coming home and seeing the mess made, except this is of supreme insignificance because we're talking about the soul's of those who were in the church and out of the church watching this display of selfishness gone awry to the point where no longer was Christ given glory, but Christ was made a mockery. And you do the same thing when you don't love. When you don't love in a biblical manner. So what's profound to me is that this is a church. And we could look at them and say... But you know what? We look at Israel and we see God's grace to them, don't we? We see His long-suffering, patient kindness. And in this letter, we see that Paul was not uh, driven to drive everyone out of that church and start over. He did not forsake them. No, the Lord sent Paul to redeem them, to restore them, to rebuke them, yes, but to restore them. And this passage of Scripture gives us so much instruction that I hope will, will help our hearts. I know that we are probably not at the same level as Corinth externally, but I would venture to guess that we experience internally, we probably covered up a little bit better in our pharisaical garb some of the eccentricities and the evil that took place in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7, Paul challenges us to properly assess our definition of love. Love can only be one of two things. It can only be self-focused and secular or self-sacrificial and sanctifying. So now we are left to ask this question, is my love useful or useless? So the first three verses we're going to go through very quickly. Paul gives an example of a kind of love that's absolutely useless. And he uses this over-the-top hyperbolic language to give these illustrations to prove that love is no value, or excuse me, the the great miraculous works have no value if done without love. The first verse we see that he he speaks of being able to perfectly speak every tongue that could be given by the Holy Spirit, even to have the ability to go to heaven itself and to perfectly converse in the language of heaven and then bring it back to earth. We're talking about a type of supernatural eloquence that would allow you to go to any place in all of the world, perfectly speak, be perfectly understood, and perfectly understand them so that the glory of Christ could be known wherever you go and that as you went forward, there would be absolute clarity. Sounds like a wonderful gift. And in fact, it's a gift that was present in that church to some degree. People could come in from anywhere, hear the 
gospel proclaimed in their native language and be cut to the heart. But soon that message would be dulled because as they were hearing, they would then see what was happening among the people. They would see the revelry. They would see the drunkenness. They would see the argument. They would see all of the worldliness, the secular aspects of this life in the church. And they would question the validity of the message because the messenger was a mess. So Paul says when it comes to having even perfect eloquence... It's without love, like a noisy gong. The idea we have here is, if you've ever been to a rock concert or maybe listened to an old Led Zeppelin album, there's a drummer, John Bonham. He, you know, excellent drummer. And at the end of every song, you know, for the big crescendo, he'd hit his huge gong. He had this 26-inch Wuhan gong that would just go, at the end of a song. And it wouldn't stop resonating for three minutes. It's great for ending a rock song, but it's not a great way to be clear in your speech, is it? The idea here is that if you had perfect eloquence, but you were delivering your message without love, it would just sound like someone going around at the same time, hitting a pot the whole time that you were talking. It's not going to be heard. And it's actually going to be really irritating to listen to. That's the idea. Without love, there could be no clarity. In the second verse, we see that if I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries, I have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And this is extreme. I mean, we're talking about a world-class intellect. I mean, forget TED Talks. This guy... He is so eloquent that people would come from miles to hear him speak. And a faith, not just enough faith to cast the mountains into the sea, but of faith to actually remove a mountain, to make it cease to exist. Who's ever seen such faith? If that were possible, but was all done without love, if this man came in speaking this great message, but only to boast about his own goodness, it would not cause anyone to hear the glory of God, would it? Remember this, knowledge puffs up. And without love, that's all we're going to be, is puffed up. If you had the, the, the faith of a mustard seed, but did not have love, you still don't have anything useful for the kingdom of God. In the third verse, he says, If I were to give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrendered my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. And here, obviously, we would think about Ananias and Sapphira, who they made an offering of their real estate, but they kept back some for themselves, and they lied about it and were struck dead. We would think about those Pharisees who were concerned about tithing on their cumin and who would have uh, a, a band precede them so that when they came to bring their offering at the temple, everyone would notice, everyone would see it and hear it and say, my goodness, is not that man generous? And even in the world we live in today, we know many people who are very wealthy, Warren Buffett being one, who love to give. They have uh, charities where they they give a significant portion of their wealth away. And uh, with people like Warren Buffett, they even look at it as one way not only to have a tax write-off, but perhaps to get a little bit of prestige, a little bit of favor, perhaps even in the eyes of the Almighty, a little bit of grace. But the reality is that when we come in and we do all of this giving with an attitude of, look at me. We start a charity, we start a trust, and we make sure our name is on there. We make sure that the check is really big and there's a really good photo op so that everyone can see it. 
ultimately that giving may have worldly value. It may gain the praise of man, but its value ends there. It's here. That's the sufficiency of it. It has eternal value of zero. So that's the, the useless love that Paul is showing us. But now he wants us to turn our attention with, with this really just outstanding series of examples of what useful love looks like as opposed to this useless sort. And obviously there's, there's many points here. As a matter of fact, there's 15 aspects of love. And if I were to go through all 15, we would be here probably till one. So I'm going to have to, to go through them a little bit faster, but I'm going to slow down on a few of them. And I really want to uh, just encourage you to try to listen. There's going to be a lot of material, a lot of information, and I might sound like a fire hose, but try to take it in as much as you can. So let's look at the first aspect of love. A useful love is patient and it's kind. Here he says, love is patient, love is kind. And the idea of patient literally means to suffer long. And what he means in this context is not only to, to have a long-suffering patience, but to have a type of suffering long and enduring wrong done to you without taking into account the wrong done to you, verse 5, to not only endure long wrong without taking note or keeping an accounting of it, but also to not be just waiting and waiting and waiting for it to be over. I think some of us go through adversity like that. We go through affliction. How long, O Lord? Well, we're reading the scripture when we say that, aren't we? But how long, O Lord, do I have to suffer with so-and-so? See, that, that's why it's so beautiful that Paul puts love is patient and kind together because the word for kindness is actually useful. What he means is that we need to stop looking at our enduring suffering with people who are unlovable or unlikable and change it to good. We need to not only deal with people we don't like or don't love, but even people who we find to be enemies, enemies to Christ, enemies to our own kingdom building and look at them rather than uh, our enemies as those who are made in the image of God that we need to love. We need to remember that this is the way God has loved us. Romans 2.4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Brothers and sisters, you have absolutely no idea how much your patient enduring with difficult people can become a saving grace for them. We need to not only endure the affliction that happens when we have to deal with people that we don't like or that don't like us or make our lives miserable purposely. We also need to look for ways to get the right perspective about what God is doing. We need to look at this type of love with a useful aspect where we turn what is bad and we make it into good. And I love this. Joseph, a man sold into slavery by his very own brothers, betrayed by Potiphar's wife, was put into a prison. In that prison, he was able to help a couple of the king's men get out of prison. One was decapitated, but he got out nonetheless. But the men forgot 
they forgot Joseph. Ultimately, Joseph, after being in Egypt for quite a while, about 17 years, uh, is remembered by God, is given a place of prestige, and is, goes from being in a pit to being in a prison to being uh, at the head of the, uh, the Pharaoh's kingdom as his prime minister. And when his brothers come in and they see their father pass away and they're fearful that now that they're going to be in the hands of Joseph and their father is no longer there to protect them, they are fearful for their lives. And Joseph says these powerful words to them, which you meant for evil against me, God meant for good, in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. See, that's what it means to have a patient, long-suffering love that is useful. You take those things that happen to you and you look for the good. You remember God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You remember the sovereign will of God in your life. You take wisdom from Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. You think about Christ's words to uh, His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Therefore you be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's all in the context of this idea of a useful love that's long-suffering. When we take the evil that's done to us and we turn it for good, we are acting like God. It's a useful love. The second aspect we want to notice is that love is also not envious and it is not boastful. And this idea of envy is the ultimate envy, is the ultimate depiction of worldly love, is it not? Because what is the focus of envy ultimately? Self. We're looking at others and we're pointing back, what do I get out of it? Why am I not like them? And then on the flip side of the same coin is boastful. Boastful says, look at me. Look at what I got. Look at my attainments. Look at the car I drive. Look at the house I have. Envy, on the negative side, well, it, it looks at what others has. It looks at that good house. It looks at that nice car. And it is like Cain when he killed Abel. It's like Korah when he saw Moses' gifts and he said, Hey, share some of the glory with us. We too are prophets. And it led to that rebellion where the earth swallowed up him and all who are with him. And most egregiously, this envy led to the Pharisees slaying Christ. They could not abide his ministry. They didn't get enough glory. They were envious and so they murdered. James 4 verses 1 and 2 give us an insight into the heart of man when it comes to envy. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust. You do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious, and you cannot obtain, so you fight, you quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. How does envy reveal itself in the life of the average person, the average Christian, perhaps? Here's some ways I've seen it. There's a business owner who has seen business going not his direction, but going to a competitor. Now, this business owner, he's a Christian, and his competitor is a rank uh, unbeliever who, who has quite a vitriolic hatred of God. 
So he questions God's goodness when he sees this happen. He's envious at the success of this, this uh, unbeliever's business and wonders the, how God could be good and let his business fail. I've seen a woman who was unconsolable with grief because her girlfriend was pregnant and she still had not been able to have a child. Uh, she had had several miscarri- miscarriages. And so rather than rejoicing with her sister, because she was with child, she was so envious that it caused her to be grieving, angry, angry at God, unable to even speak to her friend anymore. And sadly, we see this far too often. Churches comparing congregation size and wondering, the pastor wondering, why am I here? Am I not called? When they see others' ministries succeeding and knowing why ministry is so much more faithful, how can God allow that other ministry to succeed? What we have to note is that envy is a very insidious sin. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. It will destroy our hope. It will rob us of joy. And it is antithetical to love. It will destroy a church. It will destroy a friendship. It will take away your joy. It will take away your contentment. Think about this. Jesus, who had everything to boast of, never boasted. In total contrast, we who have nothing to boast of are prone to boast. So we notice that we're, we're guilty of both sins, aren't we? We're either envying what the other has and wanting to have what they have and coveting, or we're boasting about what we have and we think we did it. It's dangerous. Another point we want to note and a type of love that is useful is that we see love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant and it is not unbecoming. And this is really a profound combination of words. When you think of arrogant, the picture I want you to imagine is a blowfish. It's quite small, but when an enemy comes along, it can make itself quite large. You might think of a strutting peacock trying to impress the other peacocks so that he can get the wiles of the uh, lady peacock, right? He's flaunting himself, showing how big his feathers are. (coughs) This is what it looks like to be arrogant, to be proud, to be puffed up. Do you know what can't go together? What cannot coexist? Humility and pride. They don't mix. It's like oil and water. There cannot be room in the heart of a man who is filled with pride. There cannot be love in that heart. One or the other. And see, the pride of the Corinthian church not only led them into gross sin, but it did something even more egregious. You know what it did? It communicated to their fellow Corinthians that the gospel was not necessary. See, when they got together and they had these love feasts, there were drunken revelries. When they got together and they had uh, you know, supper and, and they were fighting over who got to have the most food. When they got together on Sunday morning and there was a show of destructive spiritual excess, the people did not see God's glory on display, but they did see the prideful hearts of each one of those Corinthian Christians quite clearly. And what is communicated to a world when we say, I belong to Christ, but everything in our lives demonstrates I'm consumed with myself, is that Christ is not necessary. 
The problem with our pride and boasting is that it steals, it robs God of His glory. We need to think about it like that. Pride is a sin. We know it's the root probably of the original sin. It's the sin that led to Satan trying to have the position of God and trying to overthrow His kingdom. It's the, the sin that caused Adam and Eve to eat not only of the fruit, but to blame one another when confronted. And it's the, the same sin that we have when we boast about ourselves and when we envy others. And it's really an underlying predicament of all things. But here's the other aspect to a, a sin that is puffed up, a love that is puffed up. Or excuse me, if we are failing to love when we are puffed up. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. And I, I think that this aspect of uh, what love does not do is something we can miss because we don't really know what it means. Uh, love doesn't act unbecomingly. I, okay, I'm, I'm dressed, I'm wearing a suit this morning. Does that count? Am I, am I acting becomingly? I'm presentable? The, uh, the idea here is, in fact, the, that of showing preference. And I think this is something we really miss we, we, if we were to look and kind of put our fingers to the pulse, the heartbeat of the church, and say, what is the source of divisions in your church? Well, it's pride. And how is pride most manifested in churches, in my opinion? Maybe you've seen this. It usually comes down to preference issues. It, it's not, the, it's not the, the black and white issues that we have problems with with one another, is it? it, it it's really what's in between. It's those conviction things, those preference issues. Are you vegetarian? That's fine, you can be. Do you eat meat? These are some things that Paul had to deal with when he wrote to the Romans. In chapter 15, he was talking to a church that was a hodgepodge of cultures. And for some of the people, they couldn't eat meat because they knew that the meat at the local market had been sacrificed to an idol. And they knew that I can't eat it. I'm not going to, so I'd rather just be like, Daniel, I'm going to eat vegetables, and that's fine. But there are others that they, they love that meat. I mean, they didn't care what kind of meat it was. They didn't care what it had been worshipped or sacrificed to. And they knew that in their hearts it was totally clean for them to consume it. And Paul even told them, if you eat it, do it. But don't, don't go after your brother and say, hey man, I'm, I'm eating you know, whatever I want and you can too. It's kind of like the conversation about alcohol. You could be a, a, a teetotaler and have an argument for it and a conviction to follow it. But if you don't, and you go around to everyone saying, listen, you're not really free. You don't understand liberty, brother. You need to come together with me, and we're going to go have a good drink and have a good conversation. We're going to talk about God. You know, Spurgeon, he smoked cigars. He liked a good you know, port. Let's do it. And what you're doing, honestly, is loving yourself. You're, you're not preferring your brother. You're, you're forgetting the, the word that Paul gave in for, uh, Romans 15. You who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength, and not just please yourself. You should think about your neighbor and his edification. You know, it's, it's interesting. I find this true for myself. Maybe it's just me. But when I find people have preference issues that I find to be weak, I can be a little bit frustrated with them. Uh, and honestly, I'm not loving them at that point, am I? I'm loving myself. So what, what this means is that we need to do all that we can, not only for our brother to show deference and preference for them and bear with them, but there's another aspect to this that's very significant. When we go into our culture, we, we need to 
abide by what the Scripture says, but where is po- wherever is possible, do whatever we can to share Christ regardless of the circumstances. And this is, again, being kind of like Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9, 22, he said, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. And I think the greatest example of this is Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary in the 19th century that went to China. He kind of originated the overseas mission trip. He went there for life. And when he got there, you know, China is a very different place. They don't just speak another language. They have a completely different culture to what he was used to. They didn't use forks and knives. They used chopsticks. So he used chopsticks. He got quite adept at it. You know, in England, he wore a suit. When he got to China, they had a totally different type of garb. So he adopted their dress. One of the things that's really profound is that in this era, there was a particular haircut every man was required to have called a Manchu, where he had to shave the top of his head in the front and could have a ponytail. And the reason he shaved his head was to show abasement to the king of China. And the reason he had a ponytail was so that if he was in any way discourteous to the king, he could pull him by the hair. So it was a complete, this haircut was saying, I relinquish all my individualism and am willing to submit to the king. And so Hudson Taylor got that haircut. That's pretty radical. But that's not the only thing. In England, when he walked around with his wife, they'd walk arm in arm. But in China, that wasn't the practice. She had to be behind him a few steps. So he did that too. See, Hudson Taylor fully adopted the idea that he wasn't going to allow his cultural preferences to dictate the way that he was going to venture into China. He was going to do all things that he could to be all things to all people so that he might win some. That's what he did. Another aspect of a love that is useful is that it is not self-seeking. And if I, if I had to tell you which one of these I think is probably the most significant for us, I would say it's this one. And the reason that is, is because the antidote to useless, selfish, self-focused love is to not be self-seeking, but to be self-sacrificial, which happens to be the title of our sermon this morning. The antidote to self-love is self-sacrifice. Think about that. If we have a love that is sacrificial, we will proactively seek the good of others, not our own. If we look out not only for our own interests, but the interests of others, we are being like Christ who came to this earth, took on the form of a man, divested himself of all of his gifts and powers, and was humble even to the point of dying on a cross. When we take up a self-sacrificial attitude in the way that we love others, we are the most like Christ at that moment. Here's a story that illustrates this. A farmer grew rice in a field high up on a mountain, and every day he would pump water from a pond lower in the valley to his property to water the paddies. Once he got done watering the patties, he would come home and find that all the water was gone. Was gone. He went and he searched to examine to see, was it some leak in the dike? Was there some inadequacy of the drainage? And as he was searching and looking, he looked down the field and saw his neighbor's field was quite well watered. And it hadn't been prior to his leaving. 
So the next day, he went out and he pumped again, watered his field as so he thought, and he came home and saw that there was no water in his field. And so he investigated again, and he saw his neighbor's field was full of water, and what he realized is his neighbor had opened up the dike and was taking all the water and watering his own field with none of the work. How would you respond? Well, this Christian ignored the injustice at first, but then after a few days of this, became upset, realizing that if the field was not watered, it would surely die. He would lose his crop, his means of living. So he went to speak to his neighbor and gently spoke to him and encouraged him to, please stop taking all this water. His neighbor refused. Make me. What are you going to do? You can't do anything about it. Rather than retaliating, the Christian took counsel. He went to the Lord, he went to the Word, and he went to his friends. And this is the counsel that they gave him. Start every day by first watering your neighbor's field, then water your field. So he did this. He did it for a few days. And after about a week or so, his neighbor was so affected by this that he came and asked him, why are you doing this? Why are you watering my field in your own field? It takes so much more labor. Why would you do this? Why didn't you retaliate or do something harmful to me? The man explained it was because he was a follower of Jesus Christ and a door was open for them to begin to speak and eventually that neighbor came to faith in Christ and that was his story of salvation. That's a, that's a love that is self-sacrificial. I think that's easy for us to look at that story and say, yeah, that makes sense. Look at your own life. Are there ways for you to show sacrifice, self-sacrifice, far easier ways to show self-sacrifice that would be of a saving nature for those who are enemies? Is there a way to show preference and deference to those who have a different conviction than you in the church? Or is there a way for you to show preference and to sacrifice your perceived needs, wants, and desires for the sake of a spouse that would cause them to be won over? I think often when we have a difficulty with a spouse, we are more prone to do our second aspect of love, which is to be easily angered. Now, love is not easily angered, but what we often find ourselves doing when we don't get what we want, when our kingdom is is slain, and we don't get the thing that we think we deserve, is uh, to literally, as this word indicates, fly off the handle. The idea is that of uh, taking an axe, cutting down a tree, and all of a sudden that axe goes flying the other direction, and hopefully nobody gets hurt. Often that's the way anger looks for us. We are fine, and then all of a sudden something about our wants and desires is taken away, and there's an explosion. A person focused on love does not become easily provoked. A person that's focused on love has a long fuse. But you know what shortens the fuse? You know what leads to Anger, a hard heart, an unrepentant heart. John MacArthur says this, and it's a good quote. It does no good to protest. I lose my temper a lot. But it's all over just a short bit. So is a nuclear bomb. And a great deal of damage can be done in a short amount of time. I don't know about you. I have things that I've said to my kids I regret. And I have things that my dad had said to me I still remember. There was in a fit of anger, an explosive uh, conversation took place, and I still remember those words, even though he came afterward and said he was sorry. 
there's a great amount of damage that can happen just like that. Love is not easily angered. We must ask ourselves, how many of the things that bother us bother God? You know, this is actually kind of a good way to look at what meekness is. I think it's a word we often miss. We think meekness is the same thing as humility. Maybe we think it's the same thing as weakness, if we really misunderstood it. Meekness means to not seek your own cause. So meekness is to be so uh, selfless, so self-sacrificial, that in a spirit of humility, you come under others and seek to do what they need, what they want, in the hopes that you may win them, or with no hopes of any return. You know that it will bring pleasure to God and be good for them. But when we are easily angered, it is an indication that you need to take note of your heart. There is something in your heart that has held on to uh, the, the things of this world and the kingdom that you have created that is saying, I have a right, it is mine to have, and nothing will void it. And when you have anger, explosive anger especially, come to the forefront, that is an indicator. It's like the canary in the coal mine. It is an indicator of your, where your heart truly is, and you need to stop. Not only repent, but you need to do heart surgery. Pray for the Spirit to guide you in recognizing what is this thing? What is the underlying issue? What is it that I think is significant enough that is worthy of this type of explosive anger? Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for anger. But we're to be angry and not sin. And the way that we know we're being angry without being sinful is when we're taking up the righteous cause of God. But even when we do that, it will never lead us to an anger that is explosive and fiery. I think the best way that I've seen this demonstrated is in the way that a parent uh, disciplines, admonishes, and instructs a child. Anytime you as a parent are teaching your child and you're taking them to the Word of God and you're saying this is the standard of God and this is how you have failed it, and you understand that your position is not that of the one who's been offended or uh, grieved, but you are standing as a surrogate in the place of God who ultimately was grieved. And you take them to the Word, you explain what it means, and then you give them whatever that discipline may be. That, and that admonishment and that encouragement, and then you take them in your arms and you love them, and you teach them the gospel again, and you send them out, and then that entire exchange was no anger. That's what it looks like to have a loving, not easily provoked anger. But every time and any time you find yourself getting an anger, angry edge with your child, you are failing. You're forgetting your position. You're putting yourself in the place of God. And you are doing lasting damage to your children. Look at verse 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Here's a really profound statement about love. Love does not keep it a record of wrongs. And what this word means about record is that you're not an accountant. I don't know about you. I don't like accounting. But when it comes to the wrongs done against me, we have a pretty easy way about that, don't we? No one had to send me to business school to teach me how to do the books. I didn't have to get QuickBooks for the wrongs done to me. I, I can remember the way I've been grieved and sinned against quite easily. 
But to keep a record of wrongs is not only dangerous, it is a fool's errand. Because you know what you're doing? You're placing yourself in the position of God at that point. You're forgetting that your record of wrongs has been accounted as righteousness because Christ Jesus took upon himself on the cross every wrong you've ever done and ever will do against him. And when you have a brother or sister in Christ, a friend, a relative, a sibling, a child who wrongs you and you cannot forgive them, you cannot forget what they've done, You're like that wicked servant who was forgiven the unpayable debt, went to the king. He had pled his case. And and the the figure there in Matthew 18 is an astronomical number. It's like I went to you and I said, listen, you owe me a bazillion dollars and I want it now. If you don't pay me a bazillion, you're going to go to prison forever until it's all worked off. That's the idea it's, not, it's a number that it doesn't even make sense. It's a nonsensical, huge number that this man owed the king. The king is going to send the man to prison, send his family to prison, and there's going to be a great grave consequence. And the man falls to his knees, cries out, forgive me the debt, I'll pay it all back, I promise. And instead of requiring the payment, and instead of sending this man to prison, the king forgave the entire debt and let him go. That same day, The man was walking through the streets, reckoning his own accounts, looking for his own debtors. Found a man who owed him 100 denarii, six months' wages. Now! I need it now! Give it to me! The man didn't have it with him. He put him in prison. When the king found out about that, that man was a wicked servant, wasn't he? He had not understood the lavish forgiveness that he had received, and he, in turn, was thrown in prison. His debt that had been forgiven was remembered, recalled, and exacted. Thank goodness God doesn't do that to us when we don't forgive others. But I'll tell you this, if you walk around with the bitterness of heart that says, I'm going to keep a record of the wrong that's done to me and I'm not going to forget, I would seriously question your salvation. I would ask you to seriously examine your heart. Because when you hold on to debt like that, you're saying, listen, God can forgive me but nobody can forgive me. Or I can't forgive anybody, excuse me. I can't forgive anyone. The debt they owe me is too much. Bitterness is like a cancer to the soul. It will destroy every relationship we have. And as it metastasizes in our soul, it will cause us to become inward-focused and untrusting, unloving, and hateful toward all other comers. And this is, a, you know, this is a, a thing to note. Often, one of the reasons we struggle to forgive is because we are afraid that if we do forgive, if it's too light of a forgiveness, the person that sinned against us is just going to take advantage of us again. There's, there's, a, there's some reality to that. But what is the kind of love God calls us to? Well, the kind of love God calls us to is to remember that God is the avenger. God is the one that we're going to trust ourselves to again and again. Every time something painful happens to you, every time something sinful is done against you, every time the cause of Christ is defamed, there's a willingness to entrust yourself. And and don't get me wrong, it, it doesn't mean that Matthew 18 is excluded. You're still going to go to this friend, this brother, this sister. 
And if love can't cover the sin that was done against you, if you're not able to bear under the weight of the uh, bitterness that may be stirred up in you, you are to go to that friend or that brother, that sister, that spouse, and to seek to be reconciled. And if they don't hear you, you're to take a friend and you're to take it to the church. Absolutely. But not every relationship do we have is that possible, such as in our workplace. Maybe we can go to a supervisor. But still, there's going to be injustice done to us. And I think again about the culture that uh, Paul and the, the people were living in in Rome where they were constantly being hounded and pursued. It's not like they could go to Caesar and say, Hey, Caesar, why are you persecuting me? I want to you know, bring my case against you. You need to stop. No, they were enduring. And they endured. And they endured. And the gospel went forth. Whenever it's possible for you to allow love to cover, do it. Whenever it's possible for you to continually forgive, do it. Because when you do it, you're being like Jesus. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2.23 While being reviled, Christ did not revile in return. This is talking about the crucifixion. While He was on the cross, and people were mocking Him and making fun of Him, making all kinds of foolish remarks and scathing remarks about Him. Hey, if you are Elijah, come down. While He was suffering, He uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to his Father. Look at our next point, verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. This again is one of those things where we see a put-off, put-on principle. It's two sides of one coin. Love does not delight in evil, but loves truth. And this idea of not delighting in evil, this thing that we need to put off is we need to put off loving those things that the Bible calls wicked or evil. We need to not delight in unrighteousness. Simply put, we need to be careful what kind of media content we take into our home. I think of the way the world depicts love not only as being self-focused, but confusing love as being something like a feeling that is an excuse for doing all kinds of wicked deeds. And it has a true effect. It's not just a subjective thought. But if you look at what happens at a regular media intake of violence, it leads to violence. If you look at a regular media intake of sexual uh, unrighteous behavior, it will excuse your own unrighteous sexual behavior. And so it goes. As a Christian, we have to ask ourselves that question, can I, should I watch this? We should not delight, laugh at those things that are wicked and unrighteous. We should be careful to guard our hearts, guard our children's hearts, and ask ourselves, is this good for my soul? Is this affecting my life? Is it affecting my conversation? Is it causing me to draw a cold in my prayer toward the Lord? Am I losing a sense of desperation about my own sin? Well, when you're having a regular intake of that which is unrighteous, according to the Scripture, that's what's happening. I think a, a really excellent picture of this would be Lot. Think about Lot, the, the man who, when uh, offered to go either way, to the right or the left, he went to the left because he saw that the fields were luxurious and it was near Sodom. And as time went, he got closer and closer to Sodom from where he was at first far from it. Later, he had a tent nearby it, and eventually he actually had a house in the city of Sodom. And you remember what the Scripture says. It says that daily his soul was tormented by the sin that took place. And what that indicates to me is 
we, we can be partaking of witnessing, actively uh, you know, part, you know, witnessing this sinful activity that happens, excusing our own participation or witnessing of it, and be cooling or, or hardening, in a sense, silencing our conscience, which is screaming. If we merely open the Word and read it again, screaming at us, stop. Be careful. God was gracious to save Lot out of Sodom, and I think that we have sin in our culture that exceeds what was evident in Sodom. We need to be on guard. So we need to, we need to put off participating in that which is evil, and instead we need to put on what is true. What is truth? Those famous words that Pontius Pilate asked Christ, what is truth? Well, the truth that we have here is that of a right meditation. And I think the, be- the best passage to go to is Philippians 4.8. If you don't have it underscored in your Bible, you should. If you haven't memorized it or you forgot it, memorize it. But Philippians 4.8 gives us this excellent meditation. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's the opposite of unrighteousness. Finally, love bears all things and it always protects. And this is verse 7. We're kind of putting together all these things into one theme of bearing all things and always protecting. Verse 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the word here for bear is literally that of a roof. It's something that covers. It's something that gives a covering to. And so let's look at it that way. We're, we're bearing with and, lo- and believing love to believe all things. And the way that it does this is rather than looking for the worst to happen, we choose to look for the best outcome. Think about that. We, we are naturally cynical, aren't we? Maybe it's just me. When we go through life... You see these bumper stickers. If anything good can happen, it will. And when I see that, I'm like, come on. No, it won't. It will if God wills it to, but not the way you mean it. But for the Christian, if, if we believe in the goodness of God, if we believe in His sovereign kindnesses to us, we will look at and believe the best, not only about circumstances, but listen, about other people. Love believing the best about others is that when they do something wrong to you, and you forgive them, and you keep no record of wrongs, the next time that they look like they might wrong you, or you perceive that they've wronged you, but you don't know for sure, you just change the direction of your perception of them just a little bit and say, I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to believe that God is working in their hearts, and that He has changed their disposition, and that rather than sinning in that same way that they have before, they're actually going to go the right way. Love hopes all things. Despite the failures, those manifold, many failures that you've seen that loved one do to you, that enemy uh, do to you, that coworker, whatever it may be, despite those many previous failures, you choose to hope for the best outcome. It's similar to believing the best, but it's choosing to hope that God would work out and listen to your prayers. I can tell you ladies... My wife uh, has prayed for me, and I can feel it because I am been, I've been changed by God's kindness uh, very much in the last 15 years of marriage. And uh, much of that is because she prayed for me because she 
uh, hoped the best and she believed the best and she prayed those things for me. And rather than every time I failed, she came to me and ridiculed me and rebuked me. She was patient with me and God has been kind to change me and answer her prayers. Do you believe God can do that for you? The best counsel I ever received when it came to ministry was uh, speaking to a man who had seen many failures in ministry, many ministry, uh, uh, much evil in ministry. And I said, how do you do it? How do you get up and preach another week? Uh, How do you still hope the church is even worth pursuing? Simple words. He just said to me, "Love, love hopes all things. It's profound. It's just simple. But for me, life-changing. See, I, I'd, I've seen much of ministry deficiency, but remembering, if I'm going to entrust myself to an ever-kind Savior who is working in the church, who is building the church, He is more invested in it than I am. So I need to trust His work and hope the best, believe the best, keep no record of wrongs, and, and instead hope all things. The last of these three things we notice is that love endures all things. And this is so powerful. It endures all things. Despite repeated failures, love continually entrusts itself to Christ again and again and again. Despite the shortcomings of other believers. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love keeps a short account. Love will pursue a brother for reconciliation, a sister, a friend, a child, a co-worker, a spouse. Love endures all these things, hopes all these things, believes all these things. At the end of chapter 13, Paul leaves us with these words in verse 13. But now, faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. I hope that you see that, yeah, faith is essential to salvation, absolutely. It's the foundation upon which we initiate this journey to the heavenly city. And of equal significance is the preservative hope. Hope is that sustaining influence that grants us perseverance in the midst of all the fiery trials we will endure as we finish this race and run to the finish line. But listen, without love, faith wanes, hope grows cold. If we don't have love, we can't have faith, we can't have hope. The evidence of faith is love. The evidence of hope is love. Biblical love is self-sacrifice. Such love is only possible if you have turned from self and set your eyes on the ultimate example of self-sacrifice, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, if you have not believed on Him and if you've heard these things and you're like, listen, I don't even know what you're talking about, but it, it's convicting. My prayer is that today you would hear His voice and that you would turn to Him. On the other hand, if you're a Christian, you're saying, listen, I'm not doing any of this very well right now. I see that. I would just tell you, me too. And that we are going to continue to strive because look at what he did in Corinth. He wrote to them. He continued to pursue them. Look what God did with Israel. The promises are still available to them to this day, even though they still have rejected Christ.
God's promises are yes and amen. He does not forsake us. He loves us to the very end. And so just like a farmer doesn't just throw the seed on the ground and expect there's going to be a, a great harvest, he goes out, he harrows the ground, he casts the seed, he waters the seed, he pulls weeds out as they pop up around that good crop. So too we need to cultivate love in our own hearts. And this week and in the weeks to come, this is what I want you to, to do is homework. Do surgery on your heart. Open up 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, and where you see the word love, love, or the preposition is, or love does, uh, uh, or it, insert your name. I'll just do it for myself. Jonathan is patient. Jonathan is kind, not jealous. Jonathan does not brag and is not arrogant. Jonathan does not act unbecomingly. He does not seek his own and is not easily provoked. Jonathan does not take account of a wrong suffered. Jonathan does not rejoice in the unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Jonathan bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I can tell you absolutely no, I don't. Neither do you. What we need to do is pray that God would make this true of us. That we would do the heart surgery, that we would, not, we would check those, those areas for the sake of our sanctification. Alright, I'm doing well in this department this week, but man, I am failing here. It's not a bad thing to do. Do this surgery on your heart. As we close, listen to this. If you want to have a sanctified love that is sufficient to please God... Give glory to God and take all the glory away from you. Commit yourself to self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is patient. Self-sacrifice is kind. Self-sacrifice is not jealous. Self-sacrifice does not brag. Self-sacrifice is not arrogant. Self-sacrifice does not act unbecomingly. Self-sacrifice does not seek its own. Self-sacrifice is not provoked. Self-sacrifice does not take into account a wrong suffered. Self-sacrifice does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Self-sacrifice bears all things. Self-sacrifice believes all things. Self-sacrifice hopes all things. Self-sacrifice endures all things. That's love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices and you love us. You're patient with us. You're long-suffering with us. And that you are ultimately consumed with seeing us become like Christ. Thank you that you have taught us the way to be more like Jesus. Thank you that we have His example. And I pray for our church that we would be a church that's filled with love because we willingly, joyfully, regularly choose to sacrifice self for the cause of Christ, to sacrifice our own thoughts of wants, needs, desires, preferences for the sake of the kingdom of Christ and its manifestation in this body and in this town. We pray, Father, in our family lives that we would put to death those things that we consider to be unapproachable necessities for peace in the home, Lord, you know our hearts. 
I pray that you would help us to harrow the ground, to do the work, to be participants in your effort of sanctifying us through your word, through this truth. May we love as you have loved us. Amen.